Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? In the movie Deterrence, the President of the United States decides to start a nuclear war from inside a greasy diner after he got stuck in a snowstorm on the campaign trail. You know, funny enough, that exact scenario was the only thing I had left on my What Else Can Go Wrong in 2020 bingo card. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear counterproliferation for a living. I'm joined today in our basements over Zoom with my co-host, Gabe. Gabe, welcome back. Hey, Tim. Good to be back. Thanks for having me again. So you're not a nuke guy. You don't study these things. You don't think about it except for the occasional time I text you and I say, Gabe, episode time. What's your credibility and your claim to fame to to come on the show? Uh, My only claim is that somehow I don't get horrendous nightmares from watching this content that you've asked me to watch. And so I guess that that qualifies me. I, I have the mental fortitude to watch these movies and not be driven insane. So... Well, it looks like I have my New Year's 2021 resolution here. So we're holed up in our collective bunkers. It's getting cold out there, but no snow yet in the D.C. area, which means we have better weather than the characters in the movie we are going to talk about today. The 2000 film Deterrence, starring comedian Kevin Pollack as a president who is stuck in a diner in Colorado during a snowstorm on the campaign trail. I think it's the primary and he needs to respond to an international crisis that involves him, you know, casually threatening the use of a nuclear weapon against Iraq. This entire movie takes place in a single location, inside the diner. So for anyone who's a fan of the plays of David Mamet, it's basically like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, but with nukes. Or, if we're talking about the French director Sidney Lemay, who directed the nuke movie Failsafe that we've covered on this podcast, you could describe Failsafe as well as 12 Angry Minutemen. Oh, God. I'll see myself out. <laughs> uh, Gabe, have you heard of this movie before I asked you to watch it? Uh, no. Like many of the movies we watch on this for this podcast, I had no idea about this. Obviously familiar with, with Kevin Pollack from, from some stuff, and most recently saw him on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But, oh, he's uh, great. Yeah, yeah. I did not realize that uh, that he was in this. So it is quite, a, quite an interesting one, as we'll get into. Yeah, he's mostly known for his stand-up and his incredible impressions of Christopher Walken and William Shatner. Basically, if you listen to him and you close your eyes, you you can get uh those three three of those celebrities all in one package. It's pretty great. To be, to be fair, among celebrities, those are two of the pretty easy ones. He is the gold standard uh, when it comes he, to he, that. He embodies them. Okay. Uh, but now my favorite, of course, is Christopher Walken. I had fun with him a couple of weeks ago, of course, Halloween. I don't dress up for the parties. It's really to scare the kids who come to the door to get the candy. <laughs> so this year they got Christopher Walken. Hi! <laughs> Trick or train? <laughs> That's a damn good question. <laughs> Trick, treat, quite the conundrum. Having said that, my young costumed friends, <laughs> as fate would have it, I too have a question. 
Which one of you little kids can guess what I've buried under my house? I always love the uh, the Saturday Night Live where Jay Moore does a Skittles commercial <laughs> as Christopher Walken. Probably my favorite, but I'll, I'll have to check out Kevin Pollack. So, Deterrence the Movie is helmed by film critic turned movie director Rod Lurie. Uh, it's, it's a French-American production that was shown in theaters, but really it was originally meant to be a TV movie, I think on Showtime. And I would I don't know about you, Gabe, I, I think it's pretty noticeable in terms of like the budget, the scene direction, the set, the story. I mean, it's basically a bottle episode in movie form. It's yeah. very, very noticeable. Although they do have, as we'll get in, they, they have some cuts to stock footage and, and somebody in a newsroom. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it, it does get noticeable after a while. Yeah, so this was his first movie, Rod Lurie's, before he later did films like The Contender with uh, Gary Oldman, which won a couple, um, at least got a couple uh, nominations for Oscars. So this was his first outing. According to Box Office Mojo, the film made $145,000 on an $800,000 budget. Oops. Yeah, not particularly great. Even Rotten Tomatoes scores it a 46% fresh out of 100, but Roger Ebert loved it. He gave it three out of four stars. So... Well, the cover, the the cover of the movie says it has some pretty like I was intrigued because it's like the most the most provocative film yeah. of the year or something like that, and I was expecting something very cerebral and different, and it is in some ways, but I, we'll get into that more. So as we get into it, uh, there are three questions I think it'd be worth thinking about uh, when we are when we're going through it. Uh, one, the process of presidential decision making on the use of nuclear weapons, how it works how it might be impacted by the president being snuck in a snowstorm in Colorado during a two-front war. That whole process is really fascinating. The movie does an interesting take on it. Two, it is obvious to us how nuclear weapons might deter another country from using nuclear weapons against you. You know, I'm going to use the world's worst weapons if you use the world's worst weapons against us. But how do nuclear deterrence people, theorists, uh, planners, how do those people talk about the use of nuclear weapons in its role to deter chemical, biological, conventional attacks, non-nuclear attacks? People talk about that in the movie, uh, dives right into it. And finally, did this movie both predict and cause the 2003 Iraq War with its portrayal of Iraq as a country on the brink of acquiring nuclear weapons, invading its neighbors, and willing to unleash nuclear, chemical, and biological warfare in the world? Maybe we don't have to actually get into that, but it is fascinating. Because this movie, and again, spoiler warning, we're going to get into it right now. We're going to talk about everything in this movie, that, what it says. It's a movie that was released in 2000, but it takes place in the way distant future of 2007, 2008, that time period. So it's definitely in the future. The Iraq War, the second one, took place in 2003. So it is three years ahead of its time, but thinking that that particular timeline was going to be, you know, seven years from the future. I don't know if that concerns you at all, Gabe, but it's just so interesting that the way this movie is and now watching it in 2020. Yeah, that I thought that was, it was like oddly prescient. Um, there's also another interesting part where i think he's he's running in the primary the the president he's running against the guy with the last name trump yeah, so, uh, weird. so there's a couple maybe somebody uh somebody had some clairvoyance when making this i think it was someone went to a psychic and the psychic was a little bit drunk so they got things right like yeah there's gonna be another iraq war <laughs> yeah uh, there's gonna be undisputed election and trump but i, I just don't know the timing yeah yeah don't take that to the track right <laughs> exactly Hate war. 
I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to haul and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat. The to decision that I made will bring the peace. He counted on America to be passive. He counted wrong. The United States will lead the way, and we expect our allies to walk with us hand in hand. When the five member nations of the Security Council were confirmed to have nuclear arsenals, it was assumed they would never be used. Deterrence was our global shield. We are now getting word from our correspondents that the United Nations-led American peacekeeping force has been overrun. Suppose you tell me why I'm hearing about the start of World War III on the television. We're also getting reports from the Pikes Peak area that there was a huge snowstorm. That's where the president is, of course. Yeah, where are we? Morris Roadside. Diner. No, no, town, town. Aztec, Colorado. Home of the Screaming Beavers. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. Here we go. Unless your leader immediately withdraws from his position, I will authorize the dropping of a multi-megaton nuclear device. What you're about to do is not in your best interest or that of the country. How the United States would launch a nuclear attack, particularly when it must be initiated and completed in less than an hour and a half, is very limiting. Let's be clear. If we attack, we attack, and it's going to be major. There's going to be nothing left. No rebuilding, no aid, nothing. You must meet our terms unconditionally in just under 40 minutes. Send the B-2, we're gonna let her fly. Gonna let him fly. That's illegal. Am, am I missing something? You drop that bomb, you got my vote and the vote of every real American. Nuclear warfare is not about gambling. It's about certainty. Strategic certainty. Moral certainty. Do I seem uncertain to you? I have four minutes to acquire those codes. What I need is for you to set aside your personal feelings and do your job. This is the bomber that our sources in the Pentagon are telling us will be used to carry and drop a nuclear weapon. This is the president. Mr. President, understand this. We have the power. We have the oil. I have the match. We are trying to follow events across the globe as efficiently as possible. So the movie starts in black and white for some reason. Uh, there's montages of various presidents from Truman to Eisenhower to Reagan to Clinton to talk, basically them talking about how much they hate war and or about how they're preparing for war. And we find the president of the United States, um, his name is in this movie, Walter Emerson, played by Kevin Pollack. He's on the campaign trail. It's Colorado. It's the presidential primary. There's a massive snowstorm, big blizzard, so the campaign team is stuck in a city called Aztec, Colorado. Kind of in the middle of nowhere, but they say it's like 40 miles somewhere from NORAD. And we know where NORAD is. NORAD is the, the location where it used to be we would run all of our kind of nuclear war planning out of. That's somewhere else now. That's a strategic command. But NORAD is the place that would monitor uh, for things like, you know, incoming nuclear attacks and, and things like that. Uh, but also it is the place that monitors, as we all know, Santa Claus as he travels around the world on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, so this, is, this movie is very timely. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, with Norad at watch in the skies overhead. When radar gave warning, it made such a clatter. Planes took to the sky to see what was the matter. And with every maneuver so lively and quick, NORAD's best team tracked old jolly St. Nick. By satellites, by radars, and fighter jets too, they made sure Santa's passage was safe as he flew. Over mountains and seas, they tracked Santa on screens, while children below drifted back to their dreams. 
For 65 years now, NORAD's trekked Santa on his trek around the world from Quebec to Atlanta. The Americans and Canadians who keep his path clear help keep our skies safe all the days of the year. Each December 24th, we track Santa's ride. It's a very special mission, and we do it with pride. The flight of his sleigh is such a magical sight. Happy holidays to all, and to all a good night. So why is the president campaigning? You know, if he's the president, why is he campaigning in the primary, you might ask? Well, it's very complicated. Gabe, do you want to get into how complicated this uh, initial setup is about wh- why this president is, is campaigning in a primary? Yeah, and I had to I had to go read about this afterwards on Wikipedia a couple of times just because it isn't entirely clear from the movie, but the gist of it is this guy Emerson, he is the uh, the president right now. He was the vice president, but then the president died, so he ascended to power. But another wrinkle, he was not the original vice president under the president who died. There was, that was somebody named uh, Buchanan. And I guess he, he had to resign during the term. So, so this guy, Emerson, he doesn't really have any real mandate for the people. Right? He, nobody voted him in. It doesn't seem like he's super popular. So he's really like fighting for his political life afresh here. Right. Yeah, he, he seems to be trying to still win over everybody. Uh, there's multiple points in the movie where they're not 100% sure if they're going to win. It's kind of like one of those things. At one point, he was behind in Colorado, but then, uh, you know, not important to the plot of the movie, but he wins the primary and they're all really excited that, that things are going well for him. His policy positions, according to the talking uh, TV uh, news person, are that the uh, pre- he's basically similar to the previous president. Um, he says that Emerson is taking a hard line on North Korea, keeping almost 80% of our of the American troops on the Korean border. Uh, so, again, I, at first I was like, well, that's not really a hard line position because U.S. troops have been in Korea, South Korea, since the Korean War. But I guess right. they're saying at this point there's some sort of actually a shooting war, perhaps, where 80% of the American troops are in the, the Korean Peninsula, which is you know, quite, quite a bit. We're in this diner. It's, it's black and white. We're not really sure what's happening here. And then all of a sudden, Secret Service agents start to show up at the diner. They start doing these like investigations, asking people questions, uh, doing some metal detector wand type stuff. Something appears to be happening. We meet a couple of the regulars of the diner. We meet Lizzie and Taylor, who's a husband and wife team. And for some reason, they're in Colorado, maybe on vacation, skiing or something, playing chess at their diner booth. (laughs) You know, it's one of those quirky things people do, play, play chess. Did they bring that chessboard? Is it the chessboard that stays there? I don't really know. And to me, this was like so on the nose because, you know, nuclear war is compared yeah, to yeah. And war is like compared to this chess game. And I'm like, really? You're going to open with that? Pun intended. They should be playing like Certigo or uh, Diplomacy or something. Yeah, but like they should be in on like a bearskin rug in front of a fire in some like <laughs> mansion. And instead, they're in this diner playing chess. It's weird. Yeah. I'm. And then, but then to contrast it, there's this like on the other side, there's this like every man named Ralphie, played by Sean Astin, you know, yeah, Sam Gamgee from Lord of the Rings, yeah, Rudy, uh, Rudy from Rudy. I mean, like a good overall wholesome guy, but he's he's a, apparently he's a huge racist in this one. He he plays a um, uh, like a blue collar every man. Uh, I forget what he has on his shirt. It's like he has some kind of blue collar job, and he's just in there shooting pool. He's given the um, giving the uh, owner some crap because the burger didn't come out right and kind of runs his mouth a little bit. So. Yeah, he's a 
fairly racist gentleman. He doesn't care about politics. He just wants to watch the Nuggets game, the basketball game on TV. And then we also meet the owner, the chef of the, the place, and then a, a waitress who's a French-Canadian lady. That's I think it's pretty much everybody in the diner. And then all of a sudden, boom, the movie switches to color. The president of the United States walks in the diner, and we know... That president uh, Emerson is rogue. You know he's a rogue guy. He's a he's a he's a, a, a little bit different than everybody else because he just walks in and immediately lights up a cigar <laughs> walking into the diner in Colorado, which maybe you were able to do in 2000. You're not allowed to do that today unless that uh, cigar is a different kind of herb in Colorado. I imagine. <laughs> hey, right. Yeah. Exactly. But he's even. I mean, he's. And he's kind of schmoozing. I mean, he, he has a cigar. He's like going to talk to everyone. He he's he's playing like this pretty. And I thought actually Kevin Pollack did a good job yeah. of like being the politician. And he has this news crew following him that they're they're clearly following this campaign. Um, they're getting some B roll of him, you know. But there's also this more serious side to it. Like he has all the Secret Service around him. He has the chief of staff and the national security advisor. And so we don't know why they're traveling on the campaign trail. Yeah, but you know, the there. national security advisor, the person who's always with the president on the campaign trail. Uh, I mean, it happens. It does. It does happen. But it's just kind of funny. It might happen when they're in the middle of their conflict with the with Korea in case, they, you know, questions come up or something. Hopefully they're not campaigning while they're there because it will be a violation of the Hatch Act. And of course, no one violates the Hatch Act. No, of course not. That's a that's a little uh, deep deep DC joke for any of the <laughs> any of the listeners who don't don't follow politics. Barely, barely a joke. Uh, so the one thing that's kind of interesting about this is as he's talking with Taylor and Lizzie. Uh, one we kind of learned Taylor is a little bit of a jerk to the waitress uh, and his wife as well. The president it shows off that he's pretty good at chess. He starts like dropping names of particular f- chess moves and fancies himself a bit of a thinker. And, you know, instead of just sitting there for a couple of hours and in the movie showing them eating some greasy chili burgers, we have to have something happen. So what happens is there's a international crisis. The TV uh, kind of breaks into the, you know, turns on. Gabe, what is the name of uh, this television station that starts uh, blurting out the news? IBS News, uh, which I couldn't stop laughing at. You can Google IBS if you don't know. But they kept saying it over and over. I'm like... Somebody had a, a sense of uh, toilet humor there, but whatever. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, the news, I actually thought, I thought the news was quite uh, realistic. Sometimes those those news reports in those movies, they seem a little fake. This one seemed quite realistic. And it it goes, it kind of sets the sage that um, I guess Uday Hussein, the son of Saddam Hussein in this universe, he's the the leader of Iraq now in 2008. Yep, uh, he's he's uh, the leader of, of Iraq. He, uh, you know, of course, in our timeline, died in 2003 during the Second Iraq War. But the movie probably movie probably didn't know that. Um, and it looks like you know because the United States is engaged in some sort of conflict with North Korea, and like I said, it's got 80 percent of its troops uh, over in, on the Korean Peninsula. U.S. is distracted. It doesn't have troops in the Middle East. You know, Central Command doesn't have the resources it needs. Uh, to be able to deter Iraq and Uday. So Uday invades his neighbors. He invades Kuwait, just like his dad did in the early uh, 1990s. And things get a little bit hairy. Uh, One thing that's interesting is the movie, of course, came out in 2000, uh, takes place in 2007. North Korea, in this movie timeline, they don't say it, but in our timeline, he does. North Korea does not yet have a nuclear weapon that's been tested. That happened in 2006. So... I don't, doesn't really ever, they don't ever really say completely, but it is just kind of fascinating, kind of middle ground 
uh, within this stuff. Um, so, of course, Iraq, when it invades, uh, kills dozens of American troops in the country. And it appears to be that Iraq is setting up advanced mobile missile launchers loaded with chemical and biological weapons. And that's being aimed at Greece, Israel, and Turkey. And the key thing is they're ready to be launched, according to the U.S. and military advisors, within one hour and 40 minutes. And the fascinating thing is the president learns about all this, of course, on IBS TV. He doesn't learn it from his military advisors. Emerson is like yelling at the military advisors, why did I learn about this on IBS TV? Uh, this is really irritating my bowels uh, that you're telling me this. Um, why do I have to hear about this by the, the newscaster who's played by Mark Thompson, who's a real anchor on Fox News? Probably why it looks so realistic. Oh uh, yeah, that that makes sense. I didn't even I didn't pick up on that. He's he's really good at this movie. Um, yeah, no, it was it was convincing. So he he's upset about this. It's a fascinating little callback uh, to the role of CNN during the first Gulf War, when it you know the news station launched. It was sometimes reporting developments um, before uh, the military was able to brief the president on them. So this kind of scenario what did actually happen, uh, not to the level that it did in the movie, but. To, to, in various kind of situations. They set up this makeshift communication setup on the diner's uh, counter, which I thought was a really cool setup, basically. Like, a bunch of uh, briefcases all opened up with communications equipment and telephones. And it, I just love it. It's created this sense of, you know, if we were in the situation room, this would all be really polished and organized, but we're not. We're kind of in the middle of nowhere. We have four phones that's at all that's secure lines that we can be able to handle. And the president is trying to figure out what to do. So the president decides to go on TV and using the guy we talked about earlier, the cameraman from IBS, who's there to do all this B-roll. It's a really funny scene where they call the head of the news station of IBS to get permission and then <laughs> ask anyone in the bar in the diner, does anyone have a map, a world map? Because he wants to put a map in his background of the camera. What's even funnier is that they have a map, like what diner has a world map in the back. I I thought I actually, so just like a brief aside, I kind of enjoyed the setting of the yeah. diner because it, yeah, it was that contrast of all this like top secret stuff, but also because you have these like normal people just kind of milling about and watching this unfold. And we'll get into that a little bit more later in terms of how they start interacting. But I actually thought this was, it was kind of cool the way they did it. A little silly, but, but cool. Would you have liked it better if the if the diner was uh, that kind of diner that's in My Miracle Mile? Oh, that like the googie architecture yeah. with all yeah, with the weird lady on the phone. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically, Tim, this movie is yeah. It, no one had a, a Zach Morris car phone, but it was it's still pretty cool. Shameless shameless plug of your own podcast on your own podcast. It's amazing. It's uh, it's how we roll. I really again, I really love this like. Can we? Do you have a world map I can display in the background? Because it reminds me of all the times I have to change my Zoom background for work meetings. Oh. <laughs> so he, he gets this background up. He puts on a sweater vest. He goes on TV and he issues a demand to Uday Hussein to stop the invasion, stand down the biological and chemical weapons, turn himself in for arrest at the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait for his war crimes. And Gabe... What happens if Uday does not agree to those terms within an hour and 40 minutes? Well, since we're on the Supercritical podcast, the president threatens to drop a 100 megaton nuclear bomb on the city of Baghdad, giving the, the, the residents of Baghdad only 90 minutes to evacuate that city. Drop the mic. It's about <laughs> to get real. As the world now knows, the leader of Iraq, Uday Hussein, 
In complete defiance of UN Resolutions 687, 773, and 883, has invaded the Emirate of Kuwait as his father did in 1990. This is not the act of a warrior nor a leader, but that of a barbarian. We must now assume that Uday Hussein's objective is one of a manifest destiny. At present, nearly 80% of our troops are on the Sea of Japan or the 38th parallel. The United States of America does not have the capability of dealing with the Iraqi invasion force with conventional expeditions. There are defining moments in the history of every nation, moments which delineate our strengths and our character. Often these moments require that a harder right be made over an easier wrong. It is with that in mind that I now wish to speak directly to the Iraqi people. Unless your leader, Uday Hussein, immediately withdraws from his position in Kuwait, leaving all weapons behind where they are, and turns himself in for arrest at the American Embassy in Kuwait. I will authorize the dropping of a multi-megaton nuclear device on the city of Baghdad. I'm now giving you, citizens of Baghdad, one hour and 20 minutes to leave the city, save your lives, and those of your children. It is crazy. Uh, no one knows whether or not the president is bluffing or not to drop a 100 megaton nuclear weapon on Baghdad. He did not consult any of his political or military or policy advisors first. If they would have, if he would have talked to them first, they might have told him that neither the United States nor any country in the world has a 100 megaton size bomb, the largest ever tested. I'm talking tested, not deployed weapon, tested nuclear device was 50 megatons. It was the codename Tsar Bomba test in Russia, and the largest U.S. nuclear weapons test was 15 megatons. The very famous Castle Bravo test that irradiated uh, the Japanese fishing boat, the one that inspired movies like Godzilla, and, you know, really set off uh, the idea amongst the American public and the world public that maybe we shouldn't be just allowing the nuclear arms race to continue, or at least not testing these weapons uh, in the atmosphere. But again, that was 15 megatons. That was the largest ever tested device. The U.S. never fielded anything near that size in terms of its, you know, deployment. There was this weapon, the B-53, which is a nuclear bomb that would be dropped from an airplane. Uh, It was retired in 1997, and that was nine megatons. And that was pretty rare for the size of that kind of capacity, you know, that kind of nuclear yield. 100 megatons is absurd. And here's a little quick description of it. Uh, how did I spend my weekend, Gabe? I went on NukeMap. You know that website where you can plug in a nuclear weapon uh, type and a location and see what the potential damages are? How could I forget, Tim? I, it's so obvious. That's how I spend my weekends as well, right? Right. So I opened up some scotch and I, I turned on NukeMap. And according to NukeMap, a 100 megaton uh, device dropped on Baghdad would result in a fireball, a nuclear fireball, radius of almost four miles, thermal radiation burns out to 45 miles. Crazy. Buildings would be knocked down up to 20 miles out, and damage such as broken glass, which is pretty dangerous when you combine it with wind that could cause that glass to, you know, go into some people, out to 60 miles. In today's population size of Baghdad, that would be 6 million deaths and 2.5 million injuries. And if it was a surface detonation, which you normally wouldn't do for a city, you would normally do an air burst a couple uh, miles above the the earth. If this was a a ground burst, the fallout cloud of lethal radioactive debris would cover either Israel, Syria, Turkey, Kuwait, 
Egypt, Iran, or Saudi Arabia, depending on the direction of the wind. Not exactly something you want to do if you are trying to defend these countries. So yeah, it's a crazy, stupid idea. And his military leaders and his national security advisor think the same thing. They think that the biochem weapons could be dealt with conventionally. Um, but Emerson doesn't want to. He wants to attack. He wants to attack bigly. He thinks that Uday, like his old man, is a quote-unquote survivor. That's a good point. That's sir. not a good point. Come on, we've been down there. All right, listen, people. Let's be clear. If we attack, we attack, and it's going to be major. I'm not going to send over a couple of tomahawks and get on the phone and say, how do you like them apples? It's never worked before. Hussein's like his old man. He's a survivor. After every calamity, he emerges dusting off his uniform asking, is that it? Now, again, just want to get into this a little bit, then I'm not sure why he would issue the demand that he has to, that Uday has to give himself in for arrest. Basically, it's forced regime change. Right. If he's a survivor, what incentive does Uday have to back down? You basically are giving the enemy here, you know, Iraq, no choice but to either completely change, regime change, back down, you go to a jail and potentially get killed, or, hey, see if you might win. You know, what, what incentive is there to back down if you are, quote-unquote, think this guy is a survivor? Like, what does he care about? His people? His cities? And you clearly just find that he doesn't necessarily care about that. So it's it's very fascinating. If people have studied this and external-induced regime change is like, has the worst track performance uh, of being able to change what a leader uh, might be able to do. It's not particularly effective, and it's why you have situations like the Iraq War and how bad that went in the, in the 2000s. Anyways, just a fascinating little aside. The movie starts to talk about, well, what are our options? You know, the president's committed to using a 100 megaton bomb. Where do we have them? How do we get them there? And there's some interesting nuke lingo that's thrown about there, at least interesting to me. Okay, okay. Before we carry out the uh, should we or shouldn't we debate, let's ensure what we in fact can do. General Riley, what do we have? Well, Mr. President, at STRATCOM under START 2, our missiles are now set on a trajectory that ends in the Atlantic. What brilliant commander-in-chief came up with that one? Okay, how long to reset the target? Our record's 20 minutes. It used to be shorter, but we de-alerted five years ago. What do we have in our arsenal? We have several triple warhead Excalibur three nuclear missiles. We could hit our designated targets in two hours. Two hours? No, that's unacceptable. We have to hit Iraq before their weapons can go hot. How the United States would launch a nuclear attack, particularly when it must be initiated and completed in less than an hour and a half, is very limiting. They reference at one point that the START II treaty uh, has been passed, and it says that our ICBMs, therefore, have to be targeted into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, which, you know, is really interesting that the chief of staff there says sarcastically, what brilliant commander-in-chief came up with that? I personally, I don't know if you cared about that line, Gabe. That insulted me to the point where I had to pause it, turn to my wife and, and uh, eight-month-old baby and said, you guys see that? You see what that? That's crazy, right? Why would they say that? And the reason why that's crazy is because, one, nuclear targeting is something that we do where we put our missiles targeted default position to the ocean. And there's a reason for that. If they accidentally go off, they don't hit a city. They don't hit just like the last target that they were set for. If they accidentally like a spark goes off and through one in a million chance causes the missile to launch and go to its you know most recent target. It doesn't hit with that city. It would its most recent target is the ocean. But you know why? You know how long it takes to change the software uh, to target somewhere else? Like five seconds. It's it's a code you put in and you change the target. It's not something that takes, according to the movie, uh, twenty minutes. And you know, this, there's a reason why we we do this is for safety purposes. According to former Defense Secretary Bob Gates in 2010, he says, "quote Our ICBMs are all targeted right now on the oceans, so that if God forbid." And for the first time in 60 years, there was an accidental launch or a problem. 
you would put a missile right in the middle of the ocean rather than target at any country. Gabe, do you think this sounds like a pretty reasonable idea? Uh, <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> well, it's definitely better than the default city being like Moscow or Beijing or or Baghdad. And the movie says, like I said, it, it takes 20 minutes to change the warhead targets. It says at one point it used to be shorter than that before we quote unquote de-alerted this is something i have to just have to rant for one quick second about because the movies i think is overall at this point in the movie this is still a good movie but this is something that kind of irritated me when they say that it used to take us only 20 minutes to retarget but then we de-alerted so it's it's longer uh this conflates two things de-alerting involves making it harder and longer for us to launch our weapons by taking them off of quick launch status and that usually means removing the warhead off the missile putting some kind of barrier between the missile in the open sky, like a concrete barrier that you can remove, removing targeting systems, gyroscopes, batteries even. Whatever you can do to increase the time that it takes so that both sides don't have an incentive to immediately launch their weapons in case there was something like a false alarm. So the idea here is if you think there's an incoming attack, you only have like four minutes to really make a decision as a president and a you know government before you have to fire your missiles because everyone's weapons are on this position where if, if I had more time, I could wait to see if there was some kind of potential false alarm or something that was happening. But because the things are set up that if we don't fire now, we're going to lose them and we have the ability to fire immediately within like four minutes, you have a huge incentive to do so even though there might not actually be an incoming attack. So that's what de-alerting is. But things like changing targets from the missile launch facility to like where, where the missiles are going, like I said, it takes like 10 seconds to change that. It's not a physical thing. There might be like a floppy disk or some kind of software change, but it's not something you have to take 20 minutes. So it's it's only really tangentially associated with, with de-alerting. The movie says that it would take two hours for the missiles to hit their targets, which is, again, super wrong. An ICBM launched from the United States, like its silo systems, anything like a Minuteman 3 missile, uh, those would hit any target in the world within 30 minutes. But then, of course there wouldn't be a movie uh, if they didn't essentially create this kind of false timeline. The, the movie also ignores the existence of ballistic missile submarines that much faster as well than uh, bombers or anything else. Was there anything that the movie gets right in all this jargon? Uh, kinda. It says that due to President George H.W. Bush's presidential nuclear initiatives, which was a unilateral decision that uh, President George H.W. Bush made right after the Cold War ended, he could have negotiated some kind of nuclear weapons arms reduction, but there was a sense like maybe we don't know if this new Russian leadership is going to respond. So he made a decision essentially. Look, I'll just we don't need these things. We can we can deal without them. We'll eliminate certain systems completely, and we'll see what the other side does. And the other side reciprocated. It's kind of a really amazing little change right after the end of the Cold War. Uh, but because of those initiatives in real life, all surface ships that have missiles that with nuclear weapons, things like uh, Tomahawk missiles or other cruise missiles and things, were completely eliminated. The movie says that they were all eliminated except for like one or two carriers, and and that's you know one of the ones that happens to be in the area. Uh, but in real life, all of those were eliminated. And the the movie does get something right, though. It does at one point say that let's not use missiles for this scenario because we want to deter the Iraq military leadership from launching their chemical and biological weapons. But if we use a missile and it's in the air, the military says at one point, well, we can't do anything about that. Once we launch it, we can't recall it. So therefore, don't use missiles. Okay, the fastest deployment would be by a tomahawk detonation in uh, 40 minutes. Okay, okay, but if we do that, we have to give uh, Hussein enough time to comply. We could launch Tomahawks 45 minutes from now. He would have that time plus an additional 40 to comply, correct? No, no, not really. 
Once that missile's on its way, it's on its way. Which is true. You launch a ballistic missile, you can't turn it off. You can't self-destruct it. None of those things are real. But then the movie immediately drops the ball on that. It's the president says, are you sure there's nothing we can do? And there must be some way to divert it, right? Well, we can do two things if Hussein complies while the missile is in flight. Firstly, we can detonate. Then we'd have nuclear rain all over the detonation area. Oh. Possibly a friendly one. Exactly, ma'am. We can also deactivate the bomb. The problem is that then, where the bomb lands, it lands. And that's like giving Hussein a free nuclear weapon. Sure. Sir, I'd say our only option is to actually drop a bomb on Baghdad. We could use our B-2s based in Saudi. How long to load her and put her up in the air? On your order, sir. The good news is the B-2 can be recalled at the last second if necessary. And I'm like, movie, you were so close. You almost had it. Just, there's no reason for that. Just say that it can't happen. Why do they have to add that extra level? It's like a book report where the kid... Uh, is doing such a great job and then at the very end of it says something like yeah i think othello's about nuclear weapons and just kind of drops the the ball right at the end there well let me let me ask you i mean it seems like they they had some they did some research here they had some kind of consultant because along with this i mean it had a tom clancy-esque feel to it sure. do you think that a movie like this that they they know the truth but they change it for as a plot device or you think it's just ignorance here and they they actually didn't do their research well well, I, I, I think maybe they didn't do a ton of research. I think they might have watched a lot of bad nuke movies. I think they watched a lot of the movies we cover on the podcast <laughs> and are pulling things out of those particular films. Because, I mean, everybody pretty much, if you study this stuff at all, you realize once you fire a ballistic missile, there's a reason why you don't have the ability to disarm it or, you know, divert it or, or destroy it. Because their worry was, well, we know how to do it. Why? What stops like the Soviet Union or China or Iraq from coming up with some sort of signal they can fire that causes all of our missiles to explode? You know, the kind of thing you would see in like in a bad, a bad movie. Right. So we don't have systems that are like that. They they don't do that. It's why we have stealth bombers and we have we have the B-52 is because you can signal to the other side. Look, we're escalating the conflict. You need to back down right now. We have planes in the air. Now, we could recall those planes. We can send out a signal up to a certain point. They'll turn around. And if the planes are in the air, look, you need to do something right now. Right. If you launch a ballistic missile in the air, it's like firing a gun. Once the bullets left the barrel, the only thing to do is, I guess, uh, Matrix-style dodge it. <laughs> There's not really much else you can really do. The one thing in the movie that really disturbs me about all of this, I know he's the president, probably not for very long and kind of really quickly, but he's asking such rudimentary questions about what nuclear weapons are and how they work and what they're doing. It's very disturbing, especially for a guy who claims that he has this like incredible national security background. Uh, he mentions at one point something amazing about his background. But honestly, Gabe, did this bother you for any of this stuff? Like, did you, as you're listening to it after doing a couple of these podcasts or you just kind of glazed right over and it's just like nuke words hitting me okay everything makes sense yeah more more nuke jargon i i really couldn't i couldn't get too worked up about it i did pick up on the the thing about the self-destruct but again i i think i'm more likely to be willing to go along with these as as plot devices you know the the thing that that bothered me i think more than that was just like this caricature of the president and, and his kind of bravado about all this that yeah. he didn't consult with anybody i mean to, to the non like new person that was the it was the more strategic elements about this not so much like the technical stuff that i had you know scratching my head about well you're a, you're a game theory guy you know you've studied this stuff you're an economist <laughs> uh in addition to being a pilot and an economist and an amateur 
uh, geo uh, geologist, geo geo expert. <laughs> you're you are you're way overstating my credentials. <laughs> I do have a master's in economics and and you know read a little bit on on game theory. They they kind of get into this and we have, we have to wait till the end for the the big reveal. But just just the whole portrayal of the president. What I did like was the again these people in the in the yeah. diner. And I know it's totally unrealistic that Secret Service would would let anyone near them. They would put them all in a broom closet. They would just yeah. say, go here, yeah. Exactly, but it's kind of cool for this movie to have, you know, there, I've seen so many of these movies where the, the president is locked in the war room with his cadre of advisors and maybe he has some dissenting opinion. But here, there are points where the people in the diner start talking about this. Yeah. So for example, the waitress and the cook, they're... They're not happy about this. Uh, at one point, the cook is like trying to tell the national security advisor to to stop the president from doing this. There's this guy uh, Taylor, who the, the the New York stock exchange stockbroker guy. Um, he's concerned about the risk of retaliation to the family and the cost of the economy, and he he weighs in on this. Their their kid is uh, in New, New York. New York. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The kid's in New York, so he's worried about retaliation. And of course, as you. As you mentioned, this guy Ralphie, this the blue collar guy, he starts going, starts talking to the president, and it starts getting more and more racist. And he starts making these racist jokes and using some pretty bad slurs. And said, you know, I wouldn't care if nuclear weapons were used against those sand n words. So when that line came, I'm like, wow, this is actually a very interesting little microcosm of what some of the opinions of real people could be about something like this. Yeah, I think this at all I'll close when I the movie's over uh, and we're we're done talking about the plot by plot points. This was my favorite part of the the movie. It just wasn't done great and I think you could have a whole movie just on on this. But the the key thing here is that the president also meets does a really quick chat with this guy who's standing there. He's he's dressed in his military vest. He's a military attaché and he's the one holding the nuclear football, the emergency satchel, which is, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, but this is the device that the president will use to to launch uh, a nuclear attack. And the president makes a pretty funny joke when he says, You may be the first of your kind to ever actually have to do his job. And it means a lot to me to have you on the team. You can tell the military attache guy is a little nervous, but he's standing there with the briefcase and the, the handcuffs. And so things escalate a bit because uh, the president gets on the phone with the ambassador uh, from Iraq uh, to the United Nations. The ambassador calls the president, who is Jewish, an unelected leader of the United States and a puppet of Zion. And therefore, he will not negotiate with a Jewish person. He's not allowed to. This pisses off the president. The the ambassador hangs up the phone. The president's aides make a point that says, look, if George H.W. Bush dropped a nuclear weapon on Baghdad, people would be upset, but, you know, they get over it. Uh, if you, as a Jewish president, dropped a nuclear bomb on Baghdad, you would have a global holy war, basically. I thought that was kind of an interesting little little wrinkle to this to this movie. It doesn't have to have that, but it's it adds a little bit of uh, extra tension everything did that work for you yeah no I, I thought it was interesting i think the director is jewish so maybe that explains you know why this this might have been brought in but it was an interesting wrinkle i thought it actually got me thinking you know what would what would happen in real life if we elected a jewish president you know relations with the middle east i mean i know things are easing up a little bit these days but it, it actually i thought it was an interesting thought experiment especially in this situation although I'm surprised the aides didn't, that wasn't like the first thing they pointed out or, or maybe the second thing after they were like, 
are you bleeping crazy? And then be like, by the way, you're going to start jihad. Like, right. don't do this. And of all the things you could say about, about Jared Kushner, he was a person who was a, a practicing uh, member of the Jewish faith and negotiated at least some kind of a peace deal between a bunch of, you know, Gulf states and, and Israel. So at least maybe again, this maybe this movie was predicting something, but just kind of got stuff a little bit off. The plan right now is the president's deciding, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to send in a B-2 stealth bomber into Iraq with the weapon. And that's what the plan's going to be. So of course, what does the, the movie do? It shows some stock footage of an F-117 uh, uh, Nighthawk stealth bomber, uh, not the B-2. Yeah, this is where it got me when they showed the yeah. F-117 instead of the... Now it's starting to grind my gears a little bit. <laughs> I mean, look, the F-117 is it's cool, the Nighthawk. It's a very cool, used in a, the Iraq Gulf War, you know, stealth bomber. It's very interesting looking, but it, it's also not as, I, I don't know if it's as interesting as the B-2, the, the wing, the spirit bomber, the kind of really long uh, weapon that we use for our strategic, you know, nuclear weapon bombing missions. So I don't know, I don't know why they just didn't say a Nighthawk. Why did they say a B-2? Because the F-117 is nuclear capable. You could have done it. I just don't get why they make these little mistakes here. Um, why didn't they just say a Nighthawk? I don't know. I, Gabe, do you have any idea about that one? Uh, just lazy. Just lazy. It might have been that the B-2 is more associated with nuclear weapons and the Nighthawk is not. But whatever. <laughs> it's just a weird mistake. One scene I did really enjoy was the president and his chief of staff. They both knew each other from Princeton. They've been around to each other for a long time. It's someone who can really talk to the president. And the chief of staff is who, throughout this movie has basically been like, I'm an, I'm an, I'm your defender, I'm your guy, I'm gonna like I'm gonna bark at the the military people, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get you on TV when you want to, but he really here quiets down and says, look, you know, like you know about the Garden of Eden that was in Iraq, you know, isn't that kind of interesting? You didn't know that you're basically. Uh, going to destroy it uh you have to kind of think about your consequences here and he starts to talk about the very first ever nuclear weapons test the the code named trinity test that was done in alamogordo in 1945 he talks about how damaging it was he talks about it in great detail and he says look now what you are going to do in baghdad it's going to make those tests look like mosquito bites you are going to be wiping out Baghdad. There's going to be nothing left. No rebuilding, no aid, nothing. You will be wiping out a civilization where civilization began. Ah, you better damn well be okay with that. And again, a quick comparison here. They're talking about a 100 megaton bomb, and that means millions of tons. The bomb test at Trinity was 22 kilotons, thousand tons. The difference between 100 million tons of TNT explosive power and 22,000 tons, which is a lot, but categorically different. Really, yeah. I thought that scene was, was, was fairly good. That's crazy. So what, what happens? Is Iraq uh, backing down after this threat? Uh, no, like the song says, they won't back down. In fact, the the military of Iran and Syria are moving to their borders, and the Israeli nuclear arsenal and its missile silos have gone hot. The, the, I, li I like how they make the joke, like, the weapons are not supposed to have. Like, come on, Mr. President. Yeah, exactly. You're the president. You know whether or not they have missiles and nuclear weapons. You don't have to make that joke. It's also their people in the room. 
whatever. <laughs> so, no, so things are clearly escalating. And then there's even more breaking news that comes in. The Iraqi ambassador comes on TV yeah. and threatens that once the B-2 stealth bomber or the F-117 that we saw, whatever, uh, comes into Iraq airspace, how they know this, I'm not sure. Right, it's a stealth bomber, but okay. <laughs> if they got all the radar pointing to one thing, they know what's happening, sure. Yeah. Well, if this happens, get ready, Tim. They're going to launch a surprise arsenal of twenty-plus nuclear weapons at the world that what? nobody knew that nobody knew they had this. I have just now sent them via facsimile to the office of the American Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. This very list. These are the locations of land-based and submarine-based missiles armed with nuclear warheads. The moment the Amer American wing of fighters crosses Iraqi airspace, we will launch a full-scale nuclear attack on five, four locations inside America, Israel, and, and every member of NATO. Uh, <laughs> Colin Powell was correct. Uh, he went to the United Nations and talked about the WM. The smoking, the smoking guns. They have. We have the smoking gun. Right. The smoking gun is that they have uh, twenty plus nuclear weapons. Not only do they have nuclear weapons, they have submarines. They've got cruise missiles. They've got land-based silos. They've got a, the whole gamut. They're going to hit four targets in every country, like America, Israel, and every one of the NATO members. <laughs> That's crazy. So they got submarines based in Libya that are going to attack Rome. We've got cruise missiles that are going to hit Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia. We've got missiles based in China, the land of China. They've got missiles in China that are going to destroy Tokyo and, for some reason, Hiroshima. Just kind of like an extra jerk move on that front. Uh, American targets are New York, D.C., Miami, and NORAD. You know, 40, 40 minutes away. That's a lot of targets. And I think it's very funny when the chief of staff kind of out of nowhere says, Miss, we're going to need some more coffee. Miss, let me get some more uh, coffee. What's your thought on the portrayal of a, a you know, a smallish nation with a small arsenal, nuclear arsenal that's being attacked? Is this a logical thing to do? Just launch a, everyone who might, you know, any country loosely associated with the Western world? I mean, no, but I guess the idea is the president essentially gave him no option. He says within an hour, you need to do regime change or I'm going to destroy Baghdad. Like, again, like I mentioned, there's no incentive to to back down here. If he would have said, I'm going to drop a nuclear weapon on your military installations, I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit them with like a 20 kiloton, 500 kiloton bomb. I'm going to drop a couple of them. And then I'm going to do more damage increasingly amounts unless you pull back and then you just leave it there. And you see what happens. You know, that's essentially what you probably would do. Is you want something left. You want to hold back some kind of damage um, right. and, and then cause a little bit of questioning and instability or, or potential for, for things to get a little bit worse. When the president does what they do, there's nothing left. So I guess the idea is we're going to target every major place around the world. And then all of these different leaders are going to get on the horn and start calling the president and say, dude, back down. I did not have anything to do with this. <laughs> right. Australia, like, I didn't do anything about this. What are you doing? Like, Rome? Right. Like, he's going to start getting phone calls from the Pope? But he can't. He's in a diner in Colorado. And this is, I think it's a fascinating little bit of a thing. Does the guy, 
Does Uday and the ambassador to Iraq realize that he really can't get on the phone with everybody all at once? They can't really reach him. You know, it's a new phone who dis situation with him. He can't really like answer many calls and those that he does, he doesn't know if they're they're legit. But anyways, it is it's pretty wild. The US military confirms that the weapons are real. The Iraqi ambassador like faxes over a list of locations and they use spy satellites instantly, which again is not something that happens with spy satellites. You have to wait till they're over their targets, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, instantly confirms all of the targets are real. They use their map and they use a little red felt pen, right, uh, to mark where all the targets are at and kind of where they're going to. And they confirm that not only are the weapons real, but they were sold to Iraq by the former French president. Like, right. Jerks, right? It wasn't yeah. Pakistan that sold Iraq the bomb. It wasn't Russia. It wasn't China. It was the French, which I think is funny given that this was a French American production. They probably wanted to add that, add that into it. The Iraqi ambassador does say, look, hey, look how crazy this is. You don't want this to happen. Let's negotiate a peace treaty. Let's back down. You can get access to all the oil that you possibly could want, but we're not going to stop our invasion. He even tempts Emerson with a successful peace talks in the Middle East. But Emerson does not take the bait. He's not interested in, in backing down. And the interesting thing is, kind of out of nowhere, the president asks the chief of staff and the national security advisor to take a walk with him, right? Let's go outside in the snow. I've got something to tell you. And, and they're at this point like five minutes away from the bomber crossing over into the airspace of, of Iraq. As the president and his advisors are outside of the diner having their little powwow, uh, what happens? Things get pretty crazy inside the diner. Yeah, so uh, the cook, uh, he loses it. He grabs a shotgun. Uh, he kills that military attache that the president had a man crush on uh, who holds the nuclear football, mm. and basically saying, you know, he's not going to let World War III happen on his watch. And uh, he, ended up, he ends up then killing himself. You know, the plot implication of this is that nobody can open the suitcase yeah. since there was a combination lock that only the attache, attache knew the combination to. Right. And if you tried to open it by like putting a, <laughs> okay. a butter knife in it or something, it would self-destruct. Right. Which I'm assuming is not real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Help me. Yeah. Not so much. Um, the nuclear football is interesting in this movie. Uh, at one point, the president turns to the the military attache and kind of asked him, hey, have you ever looked inside that thing? What does it look like? Is it ominous? It's so a president apparently has never seen inside of the nuclear football, has never been trained on it, doesn't know what it is, doesn't know what nuclear weapons are, just knows that we have a hundred megaton one of them and wants to drop it. I wonder if yeah, we don't actually just... have a one hundred megaton bomb and they're just kind of like humoring him. <laughs> it's like he's like, oh, just I'm just I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, I know how I know how big our nuclear arsenal is, but but uh, the chef doesn't know. Can you talk? <laughs> Ralphie needs some more information. <laughs> yeah. um, it's very interesting. So the he, the president yells on the phone at the Secretary of Defense to give him the code, give me the the the, the combination lock. The Secretary of Defense, there's like this subplot about how he's a disgruntled military advisor. Uh, he wanted to be something else, but it, it's very confusing. He says he's not going to do it, but then he does do it. He said it's an act of treason, all this kind of stuff, but eventually gives out the code. Mr. President, I respectfully decline. Respectfully decline? Bring me the briefcase. I have four minutes to acquire those codes. What I need is for you to set aside your personal feelings and do your job. May I remind you, Admiral, that this is an act of treason. Sir, the combination is 0806194545. And sir, along with that, I must submit my resignation. 
The combination to the, the briefcases, if you wonder if that's a date, uh, yes, it is. It is the combination lock as the uh, date of which the U.S. bombed Hiroshima. I guess an Easter egg. And when the president does open this up, inside, there's two things. Okay, General, I got uh, binoculars and a keyboard. I have no idea what to do. Kind of makes it a little bit of a jest. He has no idea what this is. They say, due to an, a National Security Council precaution, the binoculars are coded to the President of the United States retinal pattern, and anyone else who would try to use them would go blind. And there's this joke about, eh, I think we might have recoded them for your eyes, sir. Again, I don't know why the President wouldn't remember if they coded his eyeballs, but whatever. So the President puts on the glasses, the goggles, and then he types in uh, a longitude and latitude that the military gives him, and they say, sir, are you sure you want to launch this bomb at this target in Baghdad at this longitude and latitude? And he says, yes. The binoculars give the president a code that he reads back to the military, and this authorizes the release of a free-falling nuclear weapon on Baghdad, and then the code goes out to the B-2 pilots. This is a very weird, weird scene for people who are following this. Um, I don't know if it's a weird scene for you. It's one of the most odd depictions I've ever seen of the nuclear football, and I've seen a lot of them now. It, it, it did strike me as the whole binoculars thing is strange. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you'll you'll take us through what the football actually looks like, but it just the, the whole thing was silly. Very silly. And, like he has to play this video game to like launch the missile. <laughs> I, it was just needlessly adding dramatic effect as to make up for a crap budget that they had. Right. Well, I mean, it's 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 certainly trying. Here's a, a quick description of, of the nuclear football and, and what it is. It's a zero Halliburton briefcase, which anyone can buy. They're like they range between two hundred dollars and like six hundred dollars, depending on how bulletproof you want it or how serious you want it. But it's just a really nice steel briefcase with a combination lock. They put a leather bag on the outside of it to make it little, look a little bit less scary when the president has to walk in a room like see at a, a, a diplomatic outing or a summit or something. The president's always followed by a rotating military attache from the services who has one of the highest level of code clearances uh, that there is and always carrying this thing. So they, they put a leather bag around it to make it look a little less scary, a little a little more nice. It weighs about 45 pounds or, or 20 kilograms. It's called the football because, follow me here, the original nuclear war fighting plan, the code book that you would determine like what launch things you want to do, uh, was called codenamed dropkick. What do you dropkick with? But a football. Um, why it was called Dropkick, I don't know. There are three of them in real life. One of them is with the president. Another one is with the vice president. And one is a backup that's stored at the White House. There is some report that the Secretary of Defense has one, uh, but the Secretary of Defense cannot launch uh, without the the president authorizing this. The, pre the defense secretary does not have veto authority. Kind of like in the movie, if the president issues a court, an order, the Secretary of Defense is supposed to be the one to authenticate the codes. And if they don't, then the president fires that person and appoints the dude next to him and says, you're now the Secretary of Defense you know say who i am and really the football is only used when the president is in this like this situation is away from the white house or air force one but it's kind of a mainstay in nuclear war movies even if the president's at the white house or an air force one they still use the nuclear football but it's really what it is is it's a communication device inside of it is a pretty sophisticated set of communication systems and it's a couple of different things for redundancy purposes that the point of it is is to allow the president to speak to the pentagon war room or strategic command or 
or potentially NORAD, someone, whoever's left within the uh, National Command Authority. And the idea is that the president says, I want to launch a nuclear weapon. They say, great, give me your authentication codes. On the president's person is usually a little card, plastic card inside of a plastic case. They break open that case. It's about the size of a credit card. It's called the biscuit. Usually the president keeps that keeps that on them, not inside of the nuclear football, but they could if they wanted to. But most presidents can wear it with them. It has a bunch of codes. Let's say it has 10 codes. One of them is real. Nine of them are false. The president has to know what position the real code is. That's really the only thing stopping someone from finding the code and, and reading it. And unless you want to launch is what number of the code it's the real one. These codes are changed every day by the Pentagon and the, and the the NSA. But anyways, they have these codes. The president says, "I want to do this. Here's the, the code I want to use to of the of the what they call the the O plan these days, which is the operational plan. It used to be called the psyop or used to be called the dropkick. You know, I want to do this. I want to do it now. <laughs> and they say, "Okay, great. What's your code? Here's the code. Authenticate it. Okay." Thank you very much. And that's really the extent of it. It's not a button that you push that launches missiles. It just gives the order that then goes down the chain from the president all the way down to the submarines, to the bombers, to the people in the missile silos. And from the point when a president makes the decision to launch a silo-based weapon, for example, takes four minutes from that point to when the missiles are launched in an ear. But the president does not like push a button or anything. What else is kind of interesting for the movie? There's not usually a handcuff because there's not really ever a reason for it. You can't just steal the football and launch a weapon. You have to have the codes that go with it. Um, Usually there's some kind of security cable, but it's not locked. It's just like a hoop. And that's just to prevent someone from like running behind them and taking it. Uh, Usually it's just kind of held like that. There's not um, some kind of handcuffs. Now there is usually a combination lock because there's some sensitive stuff also in the nuclear football there's you know some things we all know which is like the the line of succession knowing like who's the president and you know who should we talk to next it also has a list of places locations secret you know bunkers that the president should go to in the event of a nuclear conflict like they get the president on air force one or night watch or some other kind of military plane and then they fly them to this secure location for a bit and then kind of rotate through them so it has those locations and it's got also the nuclear uh code book um or the nuclear attack targeting locations these are all things that we're pretty sure are in the nuclear football so there is a combination lock but people like the military attache would know it other people within the traveling team on the security detail would likely know what it is it's not just one person and then people at the you know pentagon and the war room and others would likely also know uh what what the codes is it's kind of very interesting there and he also has the procedures for issuing an emergency broadcast system message you know kind of calling a quick alert to the the american public hey here's what's happening here's where i am uh they have the 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 code book and the procedures to be able to do that and to kind of break into what's going on. So really overall, the important thing is it's a communication device. It's not a launching tool. It doesn't explode if you open it without a code. You would just have to like, it's a, it's a Halliburton uh, save. Basically, it's pretty, it's pretty secure. But the most important thing is every president and vice president receive a classified and very detailed briefing that's conducted by a strategic command in the White House military office on the nuclear football how to use it, what's inside, what are the launch procedures, and a bunch more information before they become president, or in the event of like the death of the president and someone else comes into power immediately, 
when that happens. It's like the first briefing that they really get or the most important briefing that they're going to get before they become president. So the fact that he uh, was appointed as vice president and still doesn't know what the nuclear football is does not reflect very well on Emerson's uh, either memory or his interest in being president. Not someone I would vote for. This Trump guy probably would have more of a uh, attention span <laughs> to detail, right? Probably. Like the Trump guy is a real go-getter. Yeah. Uh, anyways, there's a lot of stuff here, but it's just basically, it's the one of the most wild depictions of the nuclear football that I've ever seen. The only one that compares to it is there this, the, the TV show, which I really like on HBO called The Leftovers, has this dream sequence where they do something where to open the nuclear football and to get the key you need to turn it to launch the weapons, you have to... Uh, kill someone and rip the code and the key out of their stomach and it's someone that like you know and it's it's a thought experiment that called it's called the fisher protocol which is written by a, a, a philosopher named roger fisher and it's so interesting because it's a very graphic description of this procedure and it's fascinating but the movie deterrence kind of gets at that because while the president is making these decisions there are people in the room who are telling him you know regular citizens don't do this you see the scenes with taylor and he tries to call with his wife lizzie their son in new york and they get a hold of him and they try to say like hey everything's gonna be okay uh go back to sleep we love you we're gonna give you a thousand hugs and the secret service like rips the phone away from them and while they're these people who we didn't like at first because they were kind of like jerks really you know playing chess and yelling at the waitress and all of that this scene of them trying to talk to their kid and then having the phone ripped away and then them yelling at the president like what are you doing you're threatening the retaliation against our kids for what for what reason hello miss fisher yes mr woods yes i know it's late i'm sorry to wake you but listen we if lizzie and i want to talk to dylan is he no, no, I'm sure he's asleep of course he's asleep but we just want hi, to get hi. Going. um this is lizzie we just want to talk to dylan okay you have no right Regretfully, I am the only one that does have this right. No, you have no moral right. You were never elected. You can't even make the shallow argument you have a mandate of the people. You made a choice that your ego will not allow you to back off Taylor. from. If you Taylor. bomb Baghdad, we're all next. I understand you're afraid. Everyone's afraid. The whole world is afraid. I'm asking you to believe me that it's going to be okay. Not because I am telling you to, but because it's the truth. You're asking me. Due east and has the ACA in New York. I have a daughter. Tracy, right? Do it! I love my child no less than you love yours. He's gonna be five! <laughs> Please trust me. That's almost an equivalent of that. It's basically the thought experiment behind the Fisher Protocol is it forces the president to make a decision with some skin in the game, essentially. To like make the consequences of their decision to destroy millions of people have some sort of visceral reaction. And it's not just like numbers of deaths across the world. It's something that they have to deal with in front of them and make a conscious decision. I'm giving the movie a lot of credit, but that was one of the things I did quite enjoy about the film. Yeah, I thought, yeah, I agree with you. And just, you know, again, another interaction between the the average people or the, you know, the proxies for the average people in the diner. I thought that was excellent. Yeah. 
Well, anyways, the, the, the football scene is weird because it's, it's funny because the nuclear football would have already been opened if they ordered the B-2s to fly and do their mission. Like that is what you use the nuclear football for is to authorize those planes to get in the air with, with weapons. That's what you would do. You would order it basically to say, you know, we want my B-2 bombers in the air on their way and I can at some point call them back, but you need the nuclear football to authorize that. I thought that was kind of an interesting scene. There's no such thing as an eye zapper machine binoculars. The reason is, is because these systems are designed to be sophisticated, but very simple. You don't want to introduce problems like, did we update the latest software? What happens if it just makes a mistake and the president, like, you know, uh, had something in his eye that day and then caused them to get zapped and now he no longer can read the code and now you can't retaliate to a nuclear attack? These things are meant to be, like, stupid proof and you wouldn't go to this level of extra detail the B-2 bomber, because they gave the code, right, crosses into Iraqi airspace, and then what happens? Well, uh, after talking directly to the pilots, which the president <laughs> decides, that was another bizarre thing. The, the president, I guess, wants to make sure that the pilots actually carry out the order uh, to see it through. So they patch him through, and they're like, you're doing great, son. Like, keep it going. And the pilots are even like, should we be doing this? Yeah. Uh, but no, they, they end up carrying out their mission, uh, bomb drops, they show uh, video footage on the uh, hilarious IBS channel. Uh, <laughs> Tim, you probably knew instantly what where this footage was from. Uh, I, I It looked vaguely familiar to me, but I'm sure you nailed it right away. It's ridiculous. They, they show image, basically like vintage footage of a nuclear detonation, and it's it's a it's in black and white, which should give you a clue pretty quickly that this is not like real imagery or anything of what's happening. Uh, it's the Baker, the Baker test. It's a very famous nuclear test the U.S. conducted underwater near the Bikini Island as part of Operations Crossroads in 1946. You can clearly see in the footage battleships that were used as target practice. And this was a, a, a nuclear wet device that was <laughs> detonated underwater. It was like submerged underwater and detonated to see what, what the impact would be on ships. And the answer to that question is really bad. Uh, it's, it's quite a bit of damage to the ships, but it was. But it's clearly not Baghdad, which is famously in a desert and not underwater. It's weird that they couldn't at least get a nuclear test that was in color in a desert. I mean, we did over a hundred above ground nuclear tests in Nevada, and any one of them could have been used. And I just found that really, really fascinating. But the important thing is there's 23 missiles in the air. They're they're going towards their targets. They're coming from, as we mentioned, we come from China. They're coming from Libya. They're coming from submarines. They're coming from Iraq. They're going everywhere. And people are wondering, are they going to hit their targets? Is U.S. missile defense going to shoot them out of the sky? What about the president? The president's near NORAD. Are they going to be able to get out in time? The president says, I'm not leaving. The president's 40 miles away. He's he's fine <laughs> unless the missile misses and or if it's a hundred megaton bomb. So maybe it's a three million megaton bomb. Who knows? Um, the movie just kind of makes up stuff. So the question is, what happens? And here's the plot twist, right? After the U.S. destroys Baghdad with its 100 megaton bomb and everyone's wondering what's going to happen, it turns out that all of those retaliatory strikes from Iraq... Every single one of those 23 missiles are either shot down by Israeli or U.S. ballistic missile defense, or it turns out those missiles and warheads are duds. It turns out the sneaky French, the French president, sold them deactivated nuclear weapons so that the 
Iraqi military and scientists would not develop their own or buy them from somewhere else. The French sold some sort of what they called advanced teraflop computer system, which could be used to simulate a nuclear bomb and how it works. And they that's what they used to convince the Iraqis that the weapons were in working order. This is really insane. Uh, there is a teraflop computer system that the U.S. uses as part of its stockpile stewardship program. We've had this in place. Because since 1992, the United States has not done a full-scale nuclear test. This computer simulation allows us to be able to see what would happen if we detonated certain things and to see what the reaction would be. But it's not meant to see if like, oh, does this exact specific weapon work or not? The, the French basically sold them fake weapons. And the Iraqis for some period of time have had these secret weapons that they never announced to the world. Much like the Doomsday Bomb in, uh, in Doctor Strangelove, they never told the world they had these weapons which you could do to deter the world from inv invading you or deter the world from attacking you with a 100 megaton bomb, for example. They just kept these things hidden for some particular reason. whole point of the doomsday machine is lost. If you keep it a secret, why didn't you tell the world, eh? It was to be announced at the party congress on Monday. As you know, the premier loves surprises. I also love that the president feels the need to reveal this to the entire world by giving another television address yeah, yeah. for this diner. Like, why not keep that secret? And so he just like tells the entire world about this whole program with the teraflop and the French. And it's like, come on, dude, like, that's a great advantage. Why are you giving this away? Make him think that they were just duds. <laughs> Well, he, he announces this decision. He basically says, yeah, I knew about it. This crazy French president told me something on his deathbed that he did this thing, which, again, is not something you just do without talking to people. And I, it's like this thing where he, he wasn't sure if it was real or not and never bothered asking any of his military advisors about it or anyone else was told that this was something that happened. And the CIA and the military, no one else knew about these fake weapons. The only people that knew about it before it happened was those two people, the chief of staff and the national security advisor. When the president went out in the snow, he told them, I'm pretty sure this is what happened. So that's why I'm going to go ahead and be aggressive and make my decision to launch the weapons because he's pretty confident that the Iraqi weapons, uh, the nukes at least, couldn't be used. He makes this address and he says, when the five member nations of the Security Council were confirmed to have nuclear arsenals, it was assumed they would never be used. The domino effect was simply too overwhelming. Deterrence was our global shield. Today, the United States sent a message to the world. If our national security is threatened, we have nuclear weapons and we will use them. No longer are nuclear weapons only for deterrence. They're to defend us and our interest around the world. And then <laughs> leaves the television uh, channel. He, he puts on his jacket and he starts walking away. He tells the chief of staff, I'm going to make a big announcement tomorrow. I'm dropping out of the race. And everyone's upset by that. And he goes, look, uh, I've done what I can do. It's now up to the future. People like you, NSA advisor, you, chief of staff, you can figure this stuff out. I'm done. I did my part. And it's like heroic. Like, is it all for nothing if China backs down and all of this stuff and now America's is its interests are protected around the world? I'm the sacrificial lamb. He makes this comment to Taylor as he walks out. He looks at the chessboard and he says, you better lay down that king. I'd lay down the king.
and then walks out like I'm the sacrificial lamb. I'm the king that's going to sacrifice his reputation so that the world can be peaceful and protect itself. And by that, I mean the United States can now use nuclear weapons whenever it wants to to defend its interest around the world. And of course, I'm just going to, you know, wash my hands of this and kind of walk away. And the movie ends one more thing where the president is like trying to get his, I guess, stuff for his presidential library, like take that map off the wall with all my writing notes and do some last minute B-roll footage. And he goes to pick up the the waitress who's sitting there just stunned on the ground in front of the jukebox where she was dancing at earlier in the movie. She was so giddy and happy to meet the president. She was really excited by that. Her president offers a hand to pick her up and she's just i interpreted that she basically refused his help like she's just she she thinks he's a monster i think right i mean yeah everyone leaves the diner and the movie's over and he finally lights his cigar he lights his victory cigar yeah he lights the victory cigar and then there's this puzzling clip after that of uh fdr giving this famous speech about how he hates i hate war and then there's a a, a shot to a uh, cuts to a shot of like a, a a charred body that was I guess from a nuclear you know from Hiroshima or mm-hmm. something like that and then the movie ends by the way at that very point the I was watching this on Amazon Prime and it recommended as my next watch a Muppets Christmas Carol which <laughs> I thought was a little bit didn't really match up with the charred body on the screen but whatever uh, the algorithm was broken I mean dude no one knows what Gonzo is and why he loves those chickens I, I think that <laughs> may have just been the result of a nuclear attack there you go. There you go. Um, but I was just so blown away. I mean, it's I don't. Are, ah. Were they trying to cast the president as a hero or a villain? It seemed he was heroic at the end, but then they have this clip of the president say, "You know, FDR saying he hates war." It very confusing. The message is a little bit fuzzy. This movie had me until it, it was going okay, not the not the best, but it was going okay until this ending, which just totally lost me. Well, let's get super critical here about the the nuke stuff here, and I, I I've already talked a lot about the nuclear football and everything else, but there's something that just I cannot shake about this movie is it does not resolve any of the issues that the movie started with about deterrence or any of the ongoing wars. For example, North Korea still allowed in this scenario land-based nuclear weapons to be launched against uh, the United States from its borders. This is an act of war. It needs to be responded to, right? It doesn't it talks about the fact that China doesn't talk about the fact that China launched nuclear weapons against the United States, basically, you know, allowing this to happen uh, from its borders. And again, China is a nuclear weapons power. And it still allows this to happen. And there's no resolution about, well, China's going to back down. How do you know that? It just agreed to launch nuclear weapons. United States just used a nuclear weapon against Iraq. What incentive does China have to like cooperate with this crazy person? It, it definitely complicates things uh, quite a bit. The same goes for, for Libya. And at that time, thinking that this is before Libya uh, had given up its nuclear weapons program um, or the kind of pieces that it had of a nuclear weapons program in 2007. And this is actually really, really interesting. Libya had centrifuge equipment to enrich uranium to make a nuclear weapon. But it's very likely that someone secretly sold them bunk goods and they tried to make these things work and they couldn't. Really? And there's there's lots of rumors that someone sold them this stuff. I don't know if it was the French or not, but someone sold them this stuff. It didn't work. The software didn't work, and they couldn't get these things basically mothballed. They were they were just sitting there mothballed. They couldn't get them 
working. And eventually the United States and the and Libya in 2007 negotiated an agreement uh, that Libya would give up its, its weapons system in exchange for, uh, you know, some peace guarantees and some more opening up of the of, of Libya to the world. So the movie is, you know, timing basically right around when that happened. It didn't work out well for Gaddafi because he decided to uh, try to kill a bunch of his own citizens. And that caused the, in 2011, I believe, the U.S. International Coalition air support ultimately resulted in uh, Gaddafi being killed. But the point is that there is some real life scenario of some bunk goods being sold uh, to to a nuclear weapons aspirant. But anyways, the, the movie doesn't resolve any of those questions. It doesn't resolve the central problem of Iraq, but now having chemical and biological weapons. What incentive does Uday Hussein, and at no point did the movie say that he was in Baghdad, right? Like he would have left Baghdad if this yeah. threat was happening. He's now sitting there you just destroyed the capital city what stops him from launching all of those chemical and biological weapons at all of those targets now there's nothing to stop that from happening no i i i mean even for me look i'm not you know not an expert on this stuff but i would it just was like how does this solve anything and how and how does this make you know the u.s look anything other than like a, a horrendous monster. I mean, it just doesn't seem like a measured response at all. It's like somebody cutting you off in traffic. And so you like go murder their whole family. Right. <laughs> and, and anything that I've ever, you know, casually seen about war, it seems like, you know, there's some sort of measured response and doesn't do that at all. And I, it'd be fascinating to have like a sequel to this movie about what the world looks like in like a couple of months, because right. I think it would just be total chaos that this like, president just unleashed and nobody was able to stop him president emerson basically broke the nuclear taboo which is the the idea that nuclear weapons are something different than large conventional bombs there's something uniquely uh different about them and we won't use them again unless there's certain circumstances right the potential for defending your yourself against another nuclear weapon power now this is broken nuclear weapons have According to Emerson, unless someone immediately reverses, like uh, unless this reasonable Trump sounding person immediately reverses this policy and says, no, we're going back to the world of nuclear weapons are only used for these things. And we're going to start to make some progress towards disarmament or something. Now, nuclear weapons are just like anything you would use in, in war fighting. And we now have this the right to do this, which, of course, if this was real, this would destroy what we call the nonproliferation regime, which is a system set up that allows a balance where there are countries that have nuclear weapons legally those that have signed this treaty and that's united states china russia france and the united kingdom and i, and I mean legally in the legal sense like there's a treaty that says the non-proliferation treaty it was in 1970 that says that these are the people that are allowed to have weapons as long as they agree to make some progress in a reasonable amount of time to get rid of them and every country that doesn't have these weapons have agreed to not get them in hope of eventually the world becoming you know nuclear free this is destroyed what incentive does anyone have to not immediately get nuclear weapons themselves if it's the only thing that will stop the United States from attacking them? And now they're just going to make sure that their work is really, that's the only message of this is that you yeah. get a nuclear weapon, you make sure it works, you test it. And it seems to me, I mean, the incentive, if you're another nuclear power and you think you're going to have any problem with the United States, it seems like then your incentive is try to strike first, because if you know they're going to hit you anyway, right? it's just... Yeah, it, it, the whole deterrent thing is just completely destroyed by this. And so it, to me, it's the big shock of the movie shouldn't be the fact that there are all these duds and 
you know, that, yeah. that everything was okay. The big shock of the movie is like, the world is now changed forever and we'll probably have a nuclear apocalypse. And the president just pieces out. Like, I don't yeah, want to deal with yeah. the consequences of this. Yeah, goes, goes, goes to go smoke a cigar. It's, it's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. It's, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. Uh, it does touch on some interesting debates that people have had about nuclear weapons and the role of them in what they should be used for. Is, are they used only for defending themselves, yourself against a nuclear power that's going to attack you? It's, it's mutually assured destruction, essentially. Uh, you attack me and I will assure your retaliatory destruction. Or is it, could be used for conventional wars or chemical biological attacks, these kinds of things. And in the early 2000s, it was largely the U.S. declaratory policy (laughs) that we weren't going to declare what we were going to do with nuclear weapons. This was something called calculated ambiguity. The U.S. was very vague in its statements about whether or not nuclear weapons would be used in response to chemical and biological attacks. The idea was, and this is how Secretary of Defense William Cohen put it in 1998, he said, quote, We think that the ambiguity involved in the issue of nuclear weapons contributes to our own security, keeping any potential adversary who might use either chemical or biological weapons unsure about what our response would be, end of quote. So basically, this was targeted at countries like Iraq, saying, look, you, we think you might have chem weapons hidden somewhere. Uh, we're not going to tell you that for sure we're going to hit you with nuclear weapons, but we're not going to tell you that we're not going to. So we're going to let you figure it out. And therefore, like Dr. Strangelove, you know, defined deterrence where he said, Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. It's that idea is you're not sure if someone else is going to attack you with nuclear weapons. So there's the fear of doing so. Now, the question is whether or not this was working. Uh, There's huge debate about this, about how effective it was um, and maybe counterproductive. And one of the best people that have written about this is uh, scholar Scott Sagan, uh, who's based out of Stanford. For example, he wrote in 2000 that because the United States previously promised to never use nuclear weapons against non-nuclear states, you know, all of these treaties and other things, this policy, like Emerson did in the movie, encourages countries who have agreed to give up their nuclear ambitions in exchange for those promises to now maybe reconsider their positions. Sagan also argued that the United States should have a firm policy instead of this calculated ambiguity that if you used chem bioweapons against someone that was either us or our, our allies, we are going to destroy you with overwhelming conventional attacks. We're going to build a coalition. Uh, we're going to get support for this. You're going to no longer exist from a conventional weapon standpoint. We are going to destroy you. Your regime's going to end, but we're not going to use nuclear weapons for that. And he thought that would be more credible, uh, similar to what you mentioned about like, you know, road rage to I'm going to go to your house and kill your family. Like that's not necessarily a very credible threat. If you use conventional or chemical or biological attacks, is it really credible that you're going to respond with the worst absolute weapon in the world? Or are you going to do something that's a little bit more akin to something proportional? So his argument, Sagan said, was to make this something much more along the lines of whether or not they would do it and would, the, would a president really break the nuclear taboo. Of course, Emerson does in this movie, before before chemical bio-attack even happens, he does it. He's willing to break the nuclear taboo, but a lot of other people like Uday Hussein is probably sitting there in his bunker, not convinced the president is going to follow through with this. So now that's kind of what we where we are. It's It's not calculated ambiguity. But it's kind of an expanded definition of what the role of nuclear weapons are in defense. It's the kind of thing that Emerson might have enjoyed a little bit more than uh, than existed before Emerson made his decisions. Uh, but that's the nuke stuff. 
Let's uh, let's go to and wrap up here with our parking lot movie discussion. Uh, this is where we stop talking about nukes and start talking about uh, some plot stuff. The things that I would normally talk about with my friends before I got um, radicalized into the nuclear world. When we would go to a movie theater and then talk about uh, what the movie was like before we went our separate ways in the parking lot. We talked about earlier how Roger Ebert gave it three stars. He said that he, while watching the film, a curious thing happened. My awareness of the artifice dropped away. And the film began to work on me. The situation, it is true, has been contrived out of the cliches of doomsday fiction. And that human relationships inside the diner are telegraphed with broad strokes. There's a ludicrous moment when the president steps outside the storm with his advisors to tell him something we're not allowed to hear. And the ending is more or less inexcusable. But the film works. It really does. I got caught up in the global chess game, in the bluffing and the dares, and the dangerous strategy of using nuclear blackmail against a fanatic that might call the bluff. Deterrence is the kind of movie that leaves you with fundamental objections, but that's after it's over. Well, it's playing, it's surprisingly good. Would you agree with that, Gabe? Up until maybe the end? <laughs> to an extent. I mean, I, I this was, until the end, this was a lot better than I was expecting, especially from the kind of low-budget aspects of it, that weird black and white, you know. The, the movie was, it, it almost established itself trying to show that it was such a big, going to be such yeah. a big and... and um, uh, you know, serious movie. And, it, but once we kind of got into it, yeah, I, I kind of agree. As I said, I really like the, the setting and the, this kind of setup with the, you know, random people. I actually thought some of the dialogue, the acting wasn't great, but some of the dialogue was a little bit more realistic. It, it wasn't so polished and it had the feel of maybe something chaotic. The way some of the scenes were shot were pretty interesting. Like um, there were a lot where the, uh, one of the characters talking was like the back of their head so you couldn't see them or it was just them from like the waist down because they were talking to somebody sitting down so some interesting stuff there like you were really um, in the middle of this chaotic dining diner setting yeah i mean it, you know it had the we i've seen so many of these political intrigue movies where you're kind of this person in the war room you have this this viewer's uh, perspective of the war room, but it always feels like, you know, you're beyond the fourth wall and you're not really there here. It, it kind of felt that way. And just the ending to me, you know, it beyond inexcusable, it just ruins the whole movie and it ruins anything. I thought about the, you know, the president in this movie about Emerson. Here, I want to ask you about this. Do you think that that's kind of the point? I mean, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Do you think the point of the movie is to be like, this Emerson guy is kind of a kind of awful. He makes this decision. He thinks he's doing the right thing, but he's completely wrong. And, and really the person we should be, you know, heroically admiring is the waitress. It's the cook. It's the, the family, the stockbroker, like the people in the diner are the people that are the heroes of this movie. And the president, even though he gets the heroic sign off and all of this stuff, it's just pomp and circumstance covering up something awful. And that's the intent of the movie. Now, I don't I don't think that that's what they're doing. But do you think that there's a case to be made about that? No, I, I, I think you're giving it too much credit. I, I think the director... I think you're giving it too much credit. I, I think the director is trying to make him seem like a a real, you know, bad dude, hero, doing what he needs to do, tough guy kind of thing. Almost in like a, I know you covered Starship Troopers, almost in that kind mm. of, that kind of way of like, you know, ad admiring the like the strong man. That's what I came walking away. But it was then very confusing because there's all these clips about how they hate war. So if the, if the director's point was to do that, it just, 
totally got lost. Yeah, it's almost as if he was saying that all of these other presidents in the montage that are saying, I don't like war, uh, I, you know, this is awful, we should prepare for peace, and all of these things, and like, we should be doing that. And Emerson is the out, uh, oh, maybe that's why it's in black and white, is because it's Emerson that brings the world into color with his new way of looking at nuclear deterrence and and makes things a little bit more complicated when it used to be so easy. It used to be in black and white. You would know what was right and what was wrong, and war was bad, and, and nuclear weapons were bad, and we would never use them. Deterrence is what it was. But now we are the the veil has been lifted. Now everything's in color. We see our innocence is lost, and now Emerson is the one that we should be not heroically I, looking at. Am I giving too much to this? Or I think this... I think you're still giving it too much credit, but I think that's much more plausible than the other one. I I like I could see that. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because all of those presidents who say I don't like war, well, I mean, like they're also the Franklin Delano Roosevelt promoted the bomb project. Truman dropped the first atomic bomb. George H.W. Bush uh, did a number of things that he's probably not particularly proud of. All of the presidents that they talked about made decisions and none of them got rid of nuclear weapons. Even Kennedy, who negotiated the nuclear weapons uh, treaty, the non-proliferation treaty, and, and almost, you know, it would have been ratified and passed and entered into force if he wasn't assassinated. It, it was ultimately uh, passed by, by LBJ. But all of these people... You know, they all were involved in things like the Vietnam War and a bunch of other kind of nasty stuff. It's not like they really, truly loved peace at the cost of everything. So none of those people were truly, you know, black and white one way or the other. Everybody kind of had shades of of gray or, you know, splashes of of red color uh, on their hands. I do really like Kevin Pollack as the president. It's one of those debates where people have about which actors play Batman and whether or not they do a good job of both playing Bruce Wayne and Batman. Like some people like Michael Keaton was really good at playing Bruce Wayne, but maybe not the best at Batman. George Clooney was really good at Bruce Wayne, but maybe not the best at Batman. And people have that question, like, can you play? Those are two different characters in a weird way. Can they play the action side of it, but also the playboy billionaire type thing? I think that Emerson is really good at playing the politicking president kind of in out of his out of his league type thing, but he wasn't particularly good once you introduced him into the warfighting stuff. He was just I think Pollock didn't play that particularly very well. He kind of came across as this arrogant person who thinks he knows about chess and therefore he knows about nuclear war. But I'll be honest, there's a lot of people in my field of nuclear non-proliferation who think that they know what they're talking about and are very comfortable with talking about nuclear weapon use and everything will be fine if we just drop one limited nuclear weapon against Russia. They'll back down in the event of a conflict and we're just really sure about that. Uh, and I'm I'm someone who doesn't pretend to know everything, but I have a huge amount of doubts about this. And it's not just as simple as, you know, running a computer program or a simulation or um, a particular chess move. I, I don't know. How well do you think Kevin Pollack pulled off all this well, stuff? I yeah, I mean, I thought he was good as an actor. I, I I don't fault him for the character kind of sucking. Like, the the president, there's really not much depth there. He doesn't seem moved by anything. He doesn't seem to, like, have much empathy right. for a lot of this stuff. He's just, and, you know, he's like person at the poker table who's doing really well and confident, but they know what all the cards the other people are holding like that's not that's not yeah. a very that's not a very exciting thing or interesting character study so i you know again i think i think this movie would have fallen apart if it didn't have you know a good quality actor like him at the helm but at the same time i think i think it's just the character that 
that sucks. Not not Kevin Pollock. So apparently the original ending was, the original script was that he did not know about the French duds and the French selling the, the kind of bunk weapons. That he, he didn't know that and he learns it yeah, throughout this. It. I don't think that that makes the movie any better or worse. I It just, if you don't. I think it would make it a little bit better because, you know, at least this guy's doing it. There's there's some stakes to it, right? Um, here, there's like no, he's just going to murder, you know, six million people. And knowing that there's no potential, you know, downside other than throwing the world into this crazy, you know, post-nuclear whatever age. But uh, it's yeah, a, maybe it's that... a very weird thing that he didn't tell his military that this was real. I guess the thought there is if I had to put a lot of thought into this movie more than I, I did uh, or really should is if he told more people about the potential that these weapons were duds. They would try even harder to convince him to not drop a 100 megaton thermonuclear weapon on a city full of civilians that have not yet had a chance to to leave. That if he would have kept this information only to himself, he could try and do what he ultimately does, which is something he feels he needs to do to restore something, American power. It's it's a weird thing where he comes across in moments near the end as like, I'm a, I'm a, turns out I'm a war hawk. I'm an atheist war hawk killing machine that does what's right. And even if it means I'm going to lose my power, I did what needed to be done. And other times he comes across as this like really thoughtful in certain scenes, empathetic person. When like he's, he's told about the Garden of Eden being in, in Iraq, he kind of has a little bit of a moment like, mm, okay, but then immediately ignores it for the next scene. So maybe he is just a sociopath. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It's really so hard to figure out what they're trying to do here. But yeah. it worked on Roger Ebert. Funny enough, Roger Ebert's only really concern that he mentions about the movie is he thought that the nuclear football was too low key. It's like, really? It's just a budget. Uh, it's a, probably is a budget problem. It's just a pair of binoculars and a, and a keyboard. And of course, I have the exact opposite problem. I'm like, that's insane. The system is complicated and really over the top. It's much more simple in real life. But I never had a chance to talk to Roger Ebert about this. <laughs> so let's let's uh let's see how much we would have rated uh this movie forget forget what roger ebert uh says i always bring in a roger ebert quote because he's one of my favorite uh critics really enjoy his his writing style and, and everything but i think he's got it wrong on this one uh but let's go into it so our rating system we usually rate the movie or content whatever it happens to be tv books uh one out of five with five being the absolute amazing terrific thing you'd recommend it to your family during the holidays or and one being i wouldn't even make gabe watch this movie uh, <laughs> but i like to tailor this rating system based on the contents because if we get super critical about the plot let's let's get super critical about the rating system uh i've crunched the numbers here I've consulted with my national security advisor and my chief of staff, and I've determined that we should rate deterrence one out of five primetime TV addresses during a crisis. One TV primetime address may not be enough to get your point across, and people might be confused. Your adversaries don't know what you're doing. But if you've got five, you can really chew the scenery, really enjoy that free media coverage and get your point across. Uh, Gabe, I would put this at 2.5. TV news addresses. It's it's worse than average, but it's got an interesting premise. The idea of conducting a nuclear war from a less than ideal location right in the middle of common people who will have to bear the impact of the conflict and are telling you about it. I just really wish that <laughs> one of the people wasn't super uber racist Ralphie and it was more kind of common people, but maybe that is a view that needs to be uh, represented in this. Uh, I think the script could have used a rewrite. It could have used some consulting with people like me 
who knew a little bit about this movie. I hate to, I don't normally do that, but I'm like, I could have cleaned this movie up pretty quickly and it would have made it a little bit more interesting. So therefore, I'm fine with this movie being remade and I'm, I'll put my phone number in the show notes so HBO or Disney Plus can give me a call and we can remake this movie. Uh, Gabe, how many TV primetime news addresses would you give this? <laughs> I, I give it two. Um, and it's really largely based on just a very interesting premise. You know, I, I was surprised how much this movie had to kind of hook me. Uh, again, yeah, it would have to be remade. Um, I think the premise is interesting, but, but you know, the, the kind of crux of the story and, and the ending and the whole premise, like that, that needs to be reworked. This kind of motif of the diner, and I love this idea of the president having to make these big decisions while having like real common people yeah. around him chiming in it's like this whole nother dimension to it and i i think i think that has the makings of a very interesting movie but this was just in the wrong hands unfortunately i would watch this as a play if i had the ability to uh get a, a good crew of creative people together um after covid is over uh, i I'd do this as a play i think i'd be interested in this and i think i know some people to talk to about that so i might put out some feelers as something that this could be written as a one location play where you really delve into these kinds of questions of what the president needs to hear from the, the average person about this. And I, I think it'd be interesting to, to do that. And maybe we can probably get Kevin Pollack here. I think you'd be down for that. So we rated the movie. We've talked about the movie. But if people still have an, a, a hankering for more, here's a couple things that we can recommend to people if they want to check out uh, things that are related. I've got three things. Maybe Gabe's got a couple. Uh, the first one I want to recommend is the Kevin Pollack Chat Show. It's a podcast and a kind of video show on YouTube that ran for about 10 years. And it just recently ended in 2019. Uh, Kevin Pollack and his co-host Sam Levine, uh, who was on Freaks and Geeks and a bunch of other uh, great stuff. He was in Inglorious Bastards. He's really uh, tremendously funny. Both of them are really good interviewers, and they interview... 400 different guests over the course of their show. A lot of people who are in TV and movies, uh, comedy, really fascinating interviews. Kevin Pollack is very good at this stuff and is a decent amount of uh, Christopher Walken impression. So it's very fun to to listen to that. So I'd recommend, recommend people checking that out. Uh, two, if you're interested in deterrence and want to learn a little bit more about actually how it works, you cannot go wrong with two books by the the godfather on this, Thomas Schelling. One is called Arms and Influence, and the other is The Strategy of Conflict. They were both written in the 1960s and are some of the real definitive case studies on deterrence theory. And one kind of fun wrinkle about this, pop culture-wise, is Thomas Schelling wrote an article about nuclear deterrence that referenced a book called Red Alert. Um, Stanley Kubrick, the the director read that article because he's a weirdo that reads articles about nuclear deterrence. Uh, he read this article, found out about Red Alert, contacted the author of Red Alert, and that's ultimately what became the satire Dr. Strangelove movie. So thanks very much, Shelling, for making that happen. And, and finally, I recommend Rod Lurie's other movie that came out in 2000 called The Contender, the one with Gary Oldman. This is a much, much better movie. It is about a political scandal that results from trying to appoint a new vice president after one of them dies, or I think it resigns. Uh, it's very fascinating. Get, trying to get a new vice president appointed, but someone else wants it, so they release like dirt on the one that was was nominated. It's very, very good, and it's much, much better than deterrence. So uh, check that out. There's no nuke stuff in it, but it's worth your time. 
Gabe, what about you? You got some stuff you want to recommend to people? No, I got nothing. Nothing? Oh, man, we need to let you out of your bunker. You need to start seeing some things. You haven't seen any movies in the theater, I'm sure, for a while. It's been a while. Well, thanks very much for uh, coming on the podcast, talking again about all this stuff, Gabe. Where can people find you? I guess in the D.C. area, they can on Saturdays and Sundays, they can look up and see you flying around? <laughs> yeah, if I'm lucky and I'm able to get out, sure. Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on. No, thanks for having me, Tim. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, either nuke-wise or, hey, maybe you work at a diner and you know more about diner culture. This is actually how this would go down. Uh, there's a couple ways you can tell us this. We are on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast, supercriticalpodcast.com. That's a website you should check out. It's got lots of resources that go into all of the research that we do for each podcast episode. It's got all of our list of episodes and some other kind of interesting little articles that I write there. And I also have an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And you know what? It's the holiday season. It's the end of the year. If you've enjoyed the podcast and it's something you enjoyed in 2020, please leave a good review on iTunes or wherever you're at. It really helps us grow the show or at least uh, tell your friends and family over Zoom. Don't don't go uh, hanging out with your grandma or grandpa during this time. If you do get a chance to talk to them, tell them about this weird show about nuclear pop culture. That would really help to expand, to expand the show. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.